Welcome to Don't IEP Alone, the only podcast dedicated to helping parents navigate the IEP process and hosted by a special education advocate. Your host has been attending IEP meetings for over a decade and has helped thousands of parents go from an IEP rookie to an IEP all-star. Be prepared to learn tips that will be a total game changer for you as a parent advocate and most importantly, your child's outcomes. Partnered with the award-winning Lock a Day in Our Shoes, you'll be confident, knowledgeable, and actually looking forward to your next IEP meeting. Don't IEP alone. Get ready. Here's your host from suburban Philadelphia, Lisa Leitner. Um, okay, so let's talk about something else. Can a parent, is there such a thing as partial agreement? And what about if a parent agrees with most of an IEP, but there's just that one sticking point, you know, it's oftentimes it's a related service or um, a reading program, something like that. But what about partial approval of, you know, parents partially approving an IEP? Well, on the plus side, this will be a quicker answer than most yep. of mine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The short answer is yes, you can. Uh, you And what we frequently will tell parents is this, you can absolutely just write on the NORAP, you know, the written notice that you're going to get where, it, in, you know, most parents remember it as well, where they're asking me to approve or disapprove. You can absolutely just say, I approve, but then right next to it, other than this, you know, you know, because frequently, as to your point, a parent is okay with 95% of it or 90% or what, whatever it is. And you, know, you are good getting the rest of the IEP going. It's just these, this holdup that, and you can certainly comment on that if you'd like, or you can say approve, disapprove, and just write in there what your concern is. Um, the only addition I would say to that is it's particularly important to do that on a child's first IEP. Because if you don't agree to that first IEP in any way, shape, or form, legally, the district can't do anything. So even if you want them to, they can't. So particularly in that instance, you want to say, yes, implement all of it except this that I disagree with. Right. And that's um, something I know that school districts sometimes kind of use as leverage to get parents to agree. You know, Correct. that old, well, we can't start services until you agree. Mm. Um, and I always say, you know what is really is another week or two going to make a difference, you know, in the big picture. And I get that when you're in that meeting and you feel pressured, but, um, but you're saying you can just write it on the PWN or the NORA. Absolutely. And okay. get it started. Okay. Um, okay. Another question. We talked about behaviors and arrests, unfortunately. Um, but I, I feel like I'm getting a lot more calls about behaviors in school. <laughs> um, if a child has an outburst, meltdown, whatever we want to call it, an incident at school, and they break something, um, you know, of some kind of value, let's say, you know, 25 or 50, or maybe it was a laptop, you know, who is responsible for paying for that? Or is the child's family responsible for paying that? And I, I don't know, that's just one that's actually coming up a lot more. Well, uh, like many answers, uh, it depends. <laughs> Probably <laughs> <laughs> the best I can give you. Uh, so I think a lot of factors could kind of go into that. I mean, you know, especially when you're talking sort of higher end items, you know, it's a Chromebook, it's an iPad, it's something like that, but it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, if I think that 
it does make a difference whether or not what how this behavior is related to what happened and what was you know were things being implemented correctly what was the lead up to whatever happened okay and you know in some ways i mean let's say we are talking sort of a more um expensive item like a piece of assistive technology like you know getting into a chromebook or something i mean in general a school district will be responsible for paying for that chromebook and maintaining it so you know ordinary wear and tear or arguably expected wear and tear based on that student should be sort of in the course of expectation. And if it is a child that they have such concerns about that, okay, you know, yes, we agree this child needs a Chromebook or an iPad or something else, you know, expensive, whatever the case may be, that the, there should have been some discussion ahead of time. If that's sort of a fear, like, look, yes, this child needs it, but we are a little concerned behaviorally that something could happen to this. Well, you know, the district should be looking at that in advance. They used to, you know, try to come up with a plan. Well, maybe that child doesn't carry it to the next class or, may, you know, what, or the case, you know, whatever the problem might be. Um, I guess I would say, I certainly wouldn't say blanketly a parent would never have to pay for a, you know, a broken item, but I think it starts getting much more tenuous as, you know, related to what the needs of the child happen to be. I mean, if this is a child known to have behavioral issues, emotional issues, things like that, I mean, I think the connection is there that you have a much better argument to say, like, look, this is all part and parcel of my child. And, you know, I, in that instance, I, I think it's an easier argument to make that a parent should not be responsible for that. Okay. Um, so then speaking of AT equipment, let's say a child has a device of some kind. Um, what, what is the guidance on that child taking that um, piece of equipment at home or you know, to use at home? Or is it only for school? Or is that something that needs, just needs to be defined in the IEP? Well, as <laughs> I'll say, it depends. Yeah. But here's—I mean, here's what I would say about that: is you know, certainly, as you know, I mean, assistive technology can just you know whatever a child needs necessary for FAPE, you know, uh, in that scenario. Um, certainly, if it makes sense for a child to have at home for consistency purposes, you know, you know that could be the Chromebook, could be an iPad that you know they're using throughout the school day, and then bringing home that's a pretty solid argument. And honestly, I've not really experienced a lot of resistance to that. Now, Grant, that you're more, you know, boots on the ground than I am with some of this, as I mentioned before, with in the sense of usually parents probably not coming to us for that. If that's their only issue, there's a lot right. more involved, but regardless of what a school district policy might be like, Oh, we don't allow Chromebooks to go home or whatever the case. I mean, the IEP team can certainly override that. And certainly if it makes sense for, you know, consistency across environments or whatever the case may be. Again, the it depends part is, is, okay, is it something, even just using the Chromebook as the same example? Well, the child doesn't really need it for that at home, but they just like to have it at home for, you know, playing games or going online or something like that. Okay, then the district probably has an argument that perhaps it's not as necessary, but I mean, in this day and age, a lot of this technology it's hard, I think it's hard to make the argument that they're not using it across environments, most likely. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about IEEs, independent education evaluations, for those of you who um, 
aren't familiar with IEEs. Let, uh, I guess the biggest surprise, or not, it's not a surprise to me, but I think the biggest misconception is that you have a right to an IEE. And nobody yes. reads nobody reads that that next clause that says <laughs> under the following circumstances. Yes, you're hundred percent right. This actually is a lot. This is very similar in some ways to the tuition reimbursement. Uh, are you know, like okay? Well, you know, somebody says I have a right to private school. Well, okay. <laughs> and the same thing with independent evaluations. You have a right to an independent evaluation as a parent. That. Now, actually, you could break it down. You say you always have a right as a parent to an independent evaluation that you pay for. That, that it always, of course, turns on who's paying for that evaluation. So, whether or not the district would have to pay for it, that's of course that's what varies. So, one of the things um, the with you know independent evaluations is they're just procedurally. There's a few things to um, be aware of, and. One of the things from the outside outset is, is if you're a parent and you think you need an independent evaluation, and, and okay, just as an aside, when might that be? Well, it might be just that you disagree with the district's evaluation, or the district's evaluation wasn't comprehensive, or it's not really painting an accurate child of, excuse me, an accurate, accurate picture of your child anymore, um, or maybe the district's refusing to evaluate your child. Uh, and that happens, that happens as well. Uh, so you can approach it procedurally a couple of different ways. One is you just go get your own and seek reimbursement later. All right. And so, but you could also go to the district first and say, Hey, I'd like an independent evaluation at public expense, meaning district you pay for it. The risk, there's pros and cons to doing it both ways, basically. The, the pro to doing it, let's call it prospectively, you've gone now to the district to say, hey, I really think my child needs an independent evaluation. I'd like you to pay for it. The pro is the district could say yes. Okay, that's great. Um, and the district in that scenario will provide you a list of, or should provide you, I should say, a list of evaluators they happen to like, private evaluators that are geographically in your area, but you don't have to use one of them. Now, sometimes the pro can be, like the best case scenario for a parent, quite frankly, is if they find they know the person they want to use as private evaluator and they happen to be on the, the district's list. That, that tends to make it not only easier, but the other piece is, I think it holds a lot more weight um, in terms of what those recommendations are, especially if they are recommendations that the district, you know, isn't thrilled with. If it's one of their folks or they helped you find that one, it's harder for them just to dismiss them as, you know, as sometimes they will do as just quacks or, oh, they don't know education or whatever the case may be. Um, the con, the big con to asking prospectively, um, asking the district ahead of time is independent evaluations are a quirk in the law. And by that, I mean this. Typically, when you ask the district for something, let's just, for example, you say, hey, I think my child needs a one-to-one -one aid. The district can just say no. And what they're supposed to do is give you a NORAP that says this is what you know, parent requested, district doesn't believe it's necessary. Then it's kind of on you as the parent to, um, 
do something about that. Take the next step, whether that's mediation or due process, whatever the case is. But it's sort of in your lap now as a parent to do something with. For whatever reason, independent evaluations, when a parent asks for that, if the district is going to say no, the district needs to request a due process hearing to defend their own evaluation or reevaluation, whatever the case may be, which can really get things started from a legal um, perspective much quicker than a parent was really planning. I meaning, you know, they, it's sort of an innocuous question. Hey, could I get this? This would, you know, I think this is really important. If the district decides to say no, they have an obligation to get a legal process started. They are, they need to request a due process hearing. There's not that many areas in the law that that's required, but this is one. Um, now, are, it's not, do you know the no. others? Are, I was only aware of this one. What are some? Yeah, of the others? I don't. You know, I'm probably speaking too general. That's all right. No, that's <laughs> yeah. fine. As an attorney, I'm trying not to box myself in either. But somebody <laughs> will call me later and say, "Well, what about this one?" So, yeah, this is really the quirk, quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> yeah, it is. And well, and parents are shocked because they get the you know they they send a written request for an IEE, and then a few days later in the mail they get this, "Hey, you're going to due process," or you know, "We filed for due process," and most aren't expecting that. Right, nor should they be. I mean, right. they've not experienced that at any point prior to this. Right. Uh, so, right, that's the, the, the after the fact. The other, and the other problem with that, of course, is you're getting dragged to a hearing where you don't have the evaluation. So all you have, all the hearing officer, if it goes that far, um, all the hearing officer has is the district's evaluation. It's a lot easier to make the argument if you already have yours in hand. But of course, the problem is, you know, that's, excuse me, that's you putting up the money first. And right. They're not and they're, I mean, yeah. And some of them are five or seven or $10,000. So, um, right. It's just not practic practicable at right. times, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, just as an aside, one mistake I see parents make is it's, and it's parents who can't afford to get their evaluation first or get their evaluation that they bring it to the district and a believe that the district has to agree with everything. Yes. They or a don't. doctor's note. It doesn't even have to be an IEE. They just get a note from their doctor. Right. All a district has to do is consider it. They don't have to agree with any of the recommendations. doesn't mean you can't challenge whatever decision they've made about it, but they're not forced to, um, of course, you know, accept those recommendations and which, as you're kind of suggesting, comes as a shock to many parents that, well, why wouldn't they listen to a medical doctor? Why wouldn't they? Well, you know, because, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, I mean, basically, they're two different areas. And not to say your, your doctor doesn't know, you know, a lot of what's going on with what that child needs. You know, there is a case to be made that um, they're not always seeing it through an educational prism either, but okay, be, be that as it may, the district has to consider it. The other mistake related to that, though, I see is that sometimes a parent, you know, has put their child through their own evaluation, and then the district says, okay, that's fine, but we, you know, we want to, especially where a child has not been evaluated in some time or not eligible at all, the parent is not willing, doesn't want their child to have to go through evaluation again. Um, it is rarely, in my experience, a good idea for a parent to say no to an evaluation the district wants to do, unless it's something intrusive or there's some other legitimate reason for it. Right, that. but what if, it's, what if it is a case where 
parent asks for evaluations. School says no, but hey, here you can have RTI or, you know, 504. Um, But the school says no. So the parent goes out, pays for it on their own, goes back to the school and the school says, well, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. We'll evaluate them. Should they, should they say yes, even in that instance? Like, haven't they already been given the opportunity? In that instance, right. I mean, I think that's a different scenario. That's where a parent is trying to get asked just the district to do it. They're saying no. And then once the parent went and got everything now saying yes, again, I wouldn't blanketly say there's no scenario you do it, but yes, I do think that's a different scenario that at least, you know, warrants some consideration of that, those circumstances for sure. So, okay. So you mentioned mediation and due process. Um, What's the difference and how does a parent decide which one to do? And and would you say that one is like, would you say that this is an incremental thing, but like there's like facilitated IEP meeting, there's mediation, there's due process. Would you say that those are incremental steps or are they just completely three separate things? Uh, I think, well, I think it can vary. Um, You know, certainly it's easy to say due process is the, the heavy hitter of them. You know, and for, you know, for those who have been fortunate enough that not to have to deal with the due process hearing, you know, essentially that is essentially an informal trial. Um, it's not informal in the sense like, hey, you know, it just it's uh, free for all, but it's not so formal as that you're in a courtroom. In, in fact, you'll be in a conference room likely at the district. You will, it's not a judge that oversees it. It is a hearing officer. But procedurally, it does follow a typical trial pretty closely. You have witnesses, you have evidence, you have, um, you know, testimony and things like that. And then the, and, you know, this hearing officer is taking in all this information and then will write a decision. Okay. The biggest probably difference is, let's say you've gotten to an impasse with the district. And, you know, as everyone sees on the, the NORAP, approve or disapprove, if you disapprove, you can select mediation or due process. Mediation, while due process is what I explained, sort of, you know, a pseudo trial, mediation is much more like sort of an arbitration type thing. And basically what that is, is that you are, the state will assign a mediator that will over, just hear um, both sides. Now, no attorneys are allowed in that process. Now, in Pennsylvania. Consult- in Pennsylvania. I'm just, yeah, I just want to clarify. That's sorry. all right. Yes. Yeah, no, no. I just want to clarify that because we do have other listeners. In Pennsylvania, attorneys aren't allowed. Yes, thank you. Um, I forget something. <laughs> forget right. my little universe. <laughs> I <sometimes>. know. <laughs> um, the, with mediation, it can be a great step. And you're not necessarily getting attorneys involved. Now, granted, I will tell you, the district may be talking to their attorney in the background, but... <clears throat> excuse me, the, they're not going to be present. Um, what a mediator is going to do is try to reach a compromise. All right. If your issues are black and white, there's no sort of wiggle room in them. Mediation may not be the, the best way to go, but there's no harm in it. It's not like any cost to a parent to do it. Um, sometimes it is a way just to get everybody face to face and you have this third party that will try to work something out. Okay, but they're not going to force you to agree to anything, Uh, but you could agree to something. You you could all agree, (coughs) excuse me, Uh, and they will write it up and everyone will agree to it. With due process, it's ramping up in the sense that you're beyond compromise now. Now you've asked that third party not to try to reach a consensus. Now you've asked that third party, just make a decision. And, you know, they're, it's somebody, you know, 
So who knows? You're, you're taken out of the hands of kind of, you know, everyone, the decision-making pro process for everybody else involved. Right. Okay. So, but it's also important to note that school districts can say no to mediation. Yes, I should have mentioned that. Yes. That's all right. um, no. As can parents. Sometimes a district will ask for that. I would say it's rare that districts say no to it, but they do. Right. And actually, I don't think I've ever had a, I mean, obviously I'm not the be all end all, but I have been doing this now for almost 10 years. I've never had a district ask for mediation. Now that I think about it. I've seen it's, it suggested, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I think push comes to shove. Yeah, um, I think it's a, it's for me in my experience, it's largely been a parent driven process. But that may not I think be that's case. probably true. I think that's probably true. Okay. Um, so I have two more questions that I want to ask you. Let's, um, one is common hallmarks of bad IEPs or 504s, and then the other is um, school district responsibility for before and after care. So let's do the before and after care first, and then we can um, kind of wrap it up as far as common hallmarks of bad IEPs. Sure. Um, so before and after care, and this is one that I'm finding a lot. And again, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I just ask myself in my head, I'm like, how did we get here? Because um, I, I don't understand how it just it just feels like the climate out there is getting worse, um, and I feel like I'm finding more kids with behaviors and school refusal and things like that. Um, but these before and after care programs, um, some are run by school districts, some are run by outside third parties who are just renting school district space. And some are actually using their own space, but the school district has agreed to bus kids to and from this before and after care as kind of a convenient a convenience for parents. Um, but I'm finding a lot of kids are being removed because of behaviors, or not even, or even not even being removed, but not even being welcomed. The parent applies and they say, "Oh, well, no, we can't accommodate your child here." What? is there any case law kind of moving toward that yet or is it still kind of too new or what's been your experience? Well, you or, know, or what would you advise parents if, and, if they're met with that? Right. I mean, obviously situations can vary a little bit, but I mean, here's the basics, you know, the, the laws that govern, you know, special education generally are either the IDEA or section 504. And if you're qualified under the IDA, you're automatically qualified under Section 504. The result, the the reverse isn't necessarily true, but um, the reason I bring that up is Section 504 is probably what really applies to these situations. And what that is is, in essence, Section 504 is an anti-discrimination statute, which basically says, you know, rightfully, you should not be discriminating against individuals on the basis of their disability. Okay, so. What 504 essentially would say in this situation, and it applies where a, an entity is a recipient, recipient of federal funds, federal financial assistance, which every public school district is, and sort of by association, most of these groups that would be um, associated with that school district. The, with all that buildup, I mean, essentially, None of these, um, you know, programs can just categorically deny a child participating in, you know, a daycare or after-school program on the basis of, or, or what have you, some, a summer recreational program on the basis of their disabilities, okay? That, 
which means that you know a parent can't be charged more. They can't say, "Oh, you're required to bring in your own aid" or anything like that. Okay. So, what really sort of the governing piece is here is this. I mean, 504, unlike IDEA, which requires you know appropriate, you know, and obviously we could do a whole hour <laughs> right. on what appropriate is, <laughs> but Section 504 is about what's reasonable. Okay, so the an after-school program or you know is, or daycare, whatever the case may be, is not going to be required to make fundamental or substantial accommodations. Okay, it's the, the threshold is reasonable, but for whatever they're not doing, what they've elected not to do, or they're turning away a child, they have to show that it's because it's some sort of undue burden on them, like financial or administrative. And I would say, quite frankly, I think it's, you know, the fact that it like extra supervision or something like that, I think it's hard to meet that standard with that. Um, and meaning that I don't think if an after-school program had to hire an extra staff person that would be considered like an undue burden. I mean, that's probably reasonable. Um, it, you know, the cost would be spread out over everybody, whatever the, you know, they're not going to say that, but, you know, my point is that as long as it's, I, I don't think that kids can be just turned away categorically because, oh, they seem difficult or, you know, well, we would do it, but we don't have the staff for that. That. I do not believe they that that they cannot do. If they okay. had to fundamentally change everything, and it's, it's really substantial what, of what they would have to do, and it becomes in the base, you know, gets into somehow unreasonable. It's possible, meaning you know, there again, there's scenarios that I'm sure exist. I don't really think just a behavioral um, issue. Again, within reason. I mean, if it's danger to self or others, and we've tried, you know, they can show like, look, we tried X, Y, and Z, and all that's been reasonable. You know, I, I'm not saying there isn't an argument to be made from the other side, but it can't be just a sweeping no because of a disability like that. Okay. So, what would your advice be then? Because I, I mean, I am finding, I, I think, a growing number of parents who are encountering this. What would your advice be to a parent who does go to this aftercare program and they say, well, you know, oh, we can't, he needs a one-on-one -on -one and we, we don't do that here, you know, because we're an aftercare program. We don't provide one-on-ones um, or whatever the accommodation is that the child needs to be, to be in that program. What would your advice be to them? Well, you're probably your, you know, your low impact, you know, in terms of like, you know, before you have to, you know, obviously you're on one end is hiring an attorney to at least write a letter, or have a meeting or do something with, with, you know, the school district. But on the low, you know, before you get to that point, I mean, you know, I would say having an IEP meeting and discussing or at least talking to this, you know, special ed supervisor, you know, and say, here's what the problem is. You know, I don't, they're probably going to be vaguely aware of uh, some of these laws I'm telling you about, um, or at least hopefully they are, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, you know, having the meeting, you, I mean, yes, a parent could ratchet it up, you know, go to board meetings and superintendents and things like that. But I mean, I think certainly letting it be known, I mean, put it in writing, you know, this, you know, why you disagree with it. You know, I don't know if I, you know, I tell parents often stop short of citing laws and things unless you really understand them. Cause sometimes it just makes you come off as, you know, not really understanding kind of big picture kind of things. But 
you know, however you do it, I mean, make it known, but I would, you know, let people in the district that have power know as well. And, you know, I, they're well, they're well aware of what, of section 504 and, you know, you know, the, the similar, the, uh, uh, you know, the disabilities act, things like, that. I mean, they, they know. Um, right. So let me ask you this one. Is there, um, is there a responsibility if it is say a local and I'll just, I'm not saying that please YMCA people don't, don't email me and say, you said we do this and we don't do it. Um, let's just say it is a YMCA that's renting space at the district. Do they have the same obligation? Cause, because what's going to happen then is the parents going to go to the team and they're going to say, Oh, that's after school. That's not us. And they go to the Y and the Y says, Oh, well, we don't, we don't provide that. We're not special ed. We're aftercare. So what if it is one of these like nonprofit groups, just renting space? You know, um, you know, off the top of my head, you know, I do believe they're still going to be held to the same, I mean, 504 still applies. I mean, presumably they, you know, you can make the connection um, with them legally. So again, it's going to go to what's reasonable under the circumstances. Um, you know, it may be that the YMCA has to do something different. I mean, it's the same as, um, you know, sometimes you'll have something going on at the school, like, you know, do they need to have an interpreter if there no, you know, that there's a deaf child there? You know, often they would. Um, it's not really any different than that. Now, again, off the top of my head, you know, I don't want to, you know, write it in <laughs> blood right. for you that, but I do think they would, they're still going to be held to the, sort of the same criteria with section okay. 504 and the, um, in terms of just providing reasonable accommodations and they'd have to show why that, you know, can't be, um, done again, assuming they're getting, you know, they can be connected through receiving, uh, being recipients of federal funds Okay. in some way. Okay. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it is something that I'm seeing more and more often, more frequently. Okay. So wrap up. Um, and I'm anxious to hear some of your answers on this to see if, cause I do have a blog post about this, about, and I don't know if I did a list of five or 10 or what, um, but what are some common hallmarks of bad IEPs or 504 plans in your opinion? Well, if it is a, a bad IEP, one of, one of the first hallmarks is what did the evaluation look like to begin with? You know, it's very rare that you have a terrible evaluation or reevaluation and then a bang up IEP following it. Um, it's almost presumptively, if you look at your evaluation and you can tell that's a disaster, chances are the IEP is a disaster as well. Uh, you know, for the simple reason, like how, how do you know what the child needs to begin with? You know, how do you, you know, uh, you know in terms of, deciding what should be in the IEP or what the goals should be. Well, if you don't even know where you are to begin with via your evaluations, then how do you possibly know where you're trying to get to? So, so that's an easy one that comes up. I mean, sometimes an, another easy one that comes up and then I'll get into a little more specific ones is there are parents that come to us sometimes with an IEP and that we literally don't need to know anything about that child. And I can tell you that IEP is inappropriate. I mean, you know, it just, it's, you know, seven pages long, there's one goal and the, or the goals in it are, you know, show up to school, uh, <laughs> you know, do, you know, do your homework. I mean, and that's it. And you, and it's a shockingly, you do still see that in this day and age, which, uh, <laughs> on, you know, uh, 
a disappointingly large amount. I would say. Hey, the example I I I'm swear to you, I once saw a transition plan, and the transition plan was one sentence: she likes to braid hair. I'm I'm oh, yeah. not making this up, and I give that example all the time because it's it's out there. It's it's unbelievable, but it's out there. That was her transition plan: she likes to braid hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to be able to say, "Oh, that couldn't possibly be." <laughs> yeah, it happens for sure. Yeah. Uh, yep. So here's here's some common ones that, I mean, and you hear this a bit. It's just vagueness overall. I mean, so I'm sort of alluding to it with your present education levels, the goals, the SDI. Like, if they're really just so generic that who cares, or that yes, you're probably doing some of these things in the SDI, but I imagine you're doing that for every kid, which is fine. You can put those in there too, but what's special to my child or, you know, a lot of times these, it, the, you'll have a, the present education levels, which should really lay out for anybody that picks up this IEP should paint a pretty decent picture of what this child needs and what, where they are and what they've been doing and all that is uh, presuming, assuming it's not the first IEP. If it's just vague generally, or it just doesn't really seem to hit on, you know, what your child needs, or are they really addressing that? Um, a very common one is just inconsistencies in the IEP and inaccuracies. Here's one you see a lot, I find, is that the present ed levels or something, or maybe it's an evaluation of either one, but let's, let's say the present ed levels, the they'll talk to the teachers and they'll be describing problems in the class like behavior or off task, not, you know, not completing work, uh, whatever the case may be, but then maybe there's a goal for the behavior. And according to the, according to the goal, things are going great. But if you actually read <laughs> what's actually happening in the school, there's no way those are the same, you know, they're painting completely different pictures of a child or, you know, um, you know, well, the basic inaccuracy one for sure could be when you see other ch children's name in your IEP, which is shocking. That still happens, but that does. Uh, I think a common one that that parents can easily look into, or at least you know, figure out. And I know for many parents, it's just daunting to look at these IEPs. But and it is. It's like a foreign language, but you need to educate yourself in it. And one is like. Okay, what needs are cited? Let's assume you're on board with whatever the needs are. Are they addressed in the IEP at all? I mean, most of the time, I'm going to say, I want to see a goal for a, for a need, maybe multiple goals for a need. But I get that, you know, certain districts don't necessarily do it that way. And, you know, especially with functional type goals. Not that I'm going to let it go, but, you know, I'm not saying you have to run to an attorney if it's not that way. But if there's no reference to a need outside of it being listed, that's a big problem. Um, certainly failing to change, when you have a series of the IEPs that seem this, roughly the same, when things are clearly not working, that's obviously a big red flag. Uh, missing timelines is certainly a problem, at times less so than people think or parents think. You know. It's not going to be the end of the world if a district's a few weeks late on a deadline. A few months or where, I mean, the, the issue is going to be, is does it impact that child in terms of faith? If it doesn't, procedural deadlines aren't quite as important, but certainly they can become important, you know, depending how long they are. Uh, 
a big one is limiting the IEP. And this one's cer certainly hard for parents sometimes. Limiting the IEP to recognize, limiting the IEP to what's ordinarily just offered in the district anyway. You know, many, many times the districts say, well we, well, we have this and this. I mean, this is where it sort of behooves a parent to sort of try to educate themselves, talk to if they have any experts or, you know, where they know some folks. The, I would say in general, most IEP teams are not volunteering you know, certain information, but if you ask them and push them, maybe you might be able to get something, but uh, right. I, like a different I program. I think we're seeing but, a lot of the tail wagging the dog in IEPs, you know, the services and supports offered are based on what the school has, not necessarily what the child needs. Correct. And I think that's, you know, that's harder for a parent probably to ferret out at times, Right. but with an advocate, you know, or, you know, just an experienced parent who knows, you know, and, or has done a lot of some legwork, you know, that has a sense. And especially if you're, especially if you're savvy enough. And it, it, again, you can probably do this. One thing I've told parents to do before is like, look, you, you could talk to a psychologist or a reading specialist without necessarily funding an entire evaluation, right? And where that can be helpful, especially when programs are being tossed around for your child. Um, you know, I've certainly seen there be folks that are willing to just to kind of maybe review an, you know, an IEP or an evaluation. And if they have some flavor of the child, at least could at least tell you why a particular program may or may not be the, you know, ideal for a child, or at least certain problems that might come up or why this other one might be better. Um, but it wouldn't have the cost of say doing an entire evaluation, you know, which, you know, like we were just saying before, like you're up $5,000 or something. Um, just to jump ahead in terms of like a bad 504 plan, I think the most common ones are that accommodations that you're going to see that appear optional in nature that, you know, sort of say, it, it, they're not saying it, they're going to happen. They're, they hedge a bit. And the, the same is true when you see it in a, an IEP where in the special design instruction, where it's you know, an opportunity for or access to, that's sort of this undefined sort of quality that, well, it was the child had an opportunity to do this. Well, chances are, especially, I mean, well, I don't even say especially, most kids aren't doing it on their own. <laughs> they're just not. Right. So I was going to say, you know, especially when they're teenagers, but it's the same is true when they're elementary. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, most kids are unwilling to say, and not that there aren't some, but most are not saying, you know, raising their hand, okay, this is where I would like the opportunity to do a such and such. It doesn't happen that way. Most want to, you know, blend in and not stand out. Um, you know, I've, and I'm sure you've been to countless IEP meetings where you find out a child never accessed anything in a year, like of all these access to. or Right. And yeah, there's a lot of that. He never asked for it. Exactly. <laughs> and so it has to be concrete. Like, okay, this is going to happen. And to the extent you want to make it opportunities for then you're providing those opportunities in, a, in you know, uh, some sort of deliberate way, not just waiting for them to uh, come do it. Um, I would say just, and, and the other one with 504s is, and it's sort of related to that, is simply you do see this where the support is really on the child to um, access it. Um, and kind of building off that, it's just sort of this, you know, well, we're looking for self-advocacy. Okay, well, that's great. However, 
that's not the building block, you know, when that's not in your IEP 504 plan as a specific um, goal or need, then you can't just rely on that. You right. know, it's a, it's an admirable thing. It, absolutely, all these kids should learn self-advocacy. It's hard for every kid, but it's, you know, certainly harder, you know, for, you know, kids with special needs, or it can be at least. Um, you know, whenever I see that and that, then that's the excuse. I'm saying, okay, that's great. Let's have a self-advocacy goal then about that. <laughs> Let's, right. you know, you know, not, um, and just, just while I'm thinking of it, one thing with IEPs that, that I will say, I am seeing this more and more for whatever reason, where there are no functional goals, even though functional issues are predominant. Um, you see goals that are all academic. They're all, it's just reading, writing, math, which is great if that's what the child needs, but nothing social, emotional, behavioral, when it's clear that's part of the issue and they acknowledge it, but they'll have no goals for that. Um, when there's, n I'm just finding more and more where there's just nothing. Um, or if there's specially designed instruction, it may allude to doing something, but then, okay, well, what are you doing then? You know, so that's something else to uh, keep in mind. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much um, for your time. I genuinely appreciate it. I know my readers and listeners will also appreciate it. Um, if you want to find Steve, he is at theeducationlawyers.com. And I will have his uh, website and other information um, embedded in each podcast so that you can um, just tap on the links. Is there anything final that you, anything you'd like to add or any final thoughts? Well, the... Two uh, quick things I would say is one is, you know, just for our uh, firm generally, we do do a free consult. Um, so that often does help parents, um, you know, get a sense of where they stand. The other, as I should have mentioned, is, you know, look, it's daunting to get an attorney or talk to an attorney. I certainly get that. But the way this area of law is um, written is that it often, often a parent can get an attorney at low cost or even no cost, depending on their case. Because the nature of this area of law is that um, there is a fee shifting provision to the uh, laws that govern special education, meaning that if a parent requests a due process hearing and it turns out they win or mostly win, or 99% of the time, if the matter settles as most do, the parent's attorney's fees will be paid for by the school district. And that's just relevant in the sense of a parent doesn't have to always say, oh, well, look, I know my district's doing me wrong and I need to do something, but I can't possibly for an attorney. Chances are you may be able to. And right. And, the, and our state's own statistics, I mean, our, our ODR, Office of Dispute Resolution, says that more than 90 percent of cases settle. I mean, that's their own stats. So. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, when we take plenty of cases as and not just as I'm sure there's plenty of other attorneys out there that end up being nothing to the parent. We just take all the risk because their case is strong enough. But, you know, that's where we have, you know, it's a risk assessment, of course, with each, uh, uh, you know, matter that comes across our desk and when we meet with the parent and things like that. But um, it's far more accessible and the law is designed that way uh, because quite simply Congress, you know, did recognize that school districts will always have an attorney. It just makes it a little more um, accessible for parents to get an attorney as well. Okay. Um, and, I guess you would go over this in a phone call, but what would be, a, sorry to ask you one more question, but no, um, sure. what would, how would you prepare, how should a parent prepare for an attorney visit? Just gather up everything that they have? Yeah, typically what we would do is, you know, the first thing they're going to do is call us, okay? And then, you know, they'll either talk to my assistant or one of, you know, 
uh, Holly or I, and, and basically what will happen is we'll get a flavor, you know, kind of the, you know, I'm dating myself, but the Cliff's Notes version of kind of what the problem <laughs> is. Why are you calling an attorney today, right? Um, then, you know, again, in many cases, the next step would be is to have them in. And usually, and the reason we want people in is to see the record. So we're going to want them to bring in IEPs, evaluations, you know, whether the district did them or you have private ones, you know, to the extent that there is, uh, you know, maybe email back and forth, you know, that suggests something kind of relevant documents, you know, um, that, and I'm, I kind of did air quotes there, which of course you can't see, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, that gives us an opportunity that we've been doing this so long. I mean, we can, in, in most of the time, we can kind of, be, we always meet with parents, two attorneys at a time. So both of us, so with quite frankly, the reason being we can kind of go through the documents and be talking to the parent at the same time. Um, and usually I would say 90% of the time we can give a parent a pretty good idea where they stand um, after meeting with us. Um, but the other reason we want folks in is that obviously you can ask more questions, get a little more detail, and you know we're just getting sort of the, the nuts and bolts when they call by phone. But yes, a parent should be prepared ultimately to kind of put records together. If you are from a district that, I mean, if that sometimes for parents that's the problem, they're not getting the records to begin with, and obviously that's a different scenario, but um, yeah, that's, that's ultimately where it ends up going. But from phone call, usually to a meeting, and then see where we go from there. Okay. Well, yeah, don't be afraid to call an attorney. I've met with lots of them. I've met with Steve over various things. And trust me, it's not that scary. Um, although I, I do understand why it's daunting at first. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for being on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Okay. And as a reminder, uh, one more time, you can find Steve at theeducationlawyers.com. Hey, it's Lisa. Before you listen to the rest of this podcast, I just wanted to remind you that this is part two of two of an interview that I did with Steve Jacobson, an attorney in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. We ended up talking for almost 90 minutes, and I didn't want to do one crazy long podcast with too much information. So the first part of our chat is in yesterday's episode. I hope you get a chance to listen. Thanks. Now on to Thanks for listening two. to the Don't IEP Alone podcast. No parent should have to IEP alone. And with a day in our shoes, you don't have to. For more IEP assistance and letter templates, visit adayinourshoes.com. For ongoing assistance and support, follow our Facebook page and group.
Wait. 